Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Ben Ryder, longtime Sports Illustrated columnist, author of the New York Times bestseller Astroball, and host and producer of The Edge, a documentary podcast about the scandal that tarnished the Houston Astros. Ben joined me on the show two years ago to discuss Astroball, which chronicled the Astros' rise from cellar-dweller to World Series champion in the three years after he predicted it would happen on the cover of Sports Illustrated. What happened after was a shock to his system, and his podcast is his post-mortem on the team and on his work. 
Our conversation discusses what happened, Ben's assessment of the team and his book, and his conclusions. In the end, Ben found that the Astros story is about much more than baseball. It's about power, money, culture, and accountability, about a modern world where everyone is seeking an edge, and about who ultimately benefits from that world. It sure sounds familiar to our world of investing. If the conversation piques your interest, I strongly recommend having a listen to his podcast, The Edge. Please enjoy my conversation with Ben Ryder. Ben, great to see you. Thanks for having me back, Ted. Yeah. You know, I was looking back and the last time we recorded on the podcast, it was August of 2018. Astro Ball had probably just hit the bestseller list and things were riding high. So why don't we dive into what happened? Things have changed a little bit since August of 2018, Ted. I would argue that the Astros remain a model organization, right? An organization that we can learn from. But now we can learn a lot of different things besides how to turn the laughing stock of sports into a champion in a few short years. We can learn about some of the pitfalls that such organizations might encounter along the way. For people who haven't followed this story, essentially last fall, exactly a year ago, The Athletic came out with a story revealing that the Astros 2017 championship had been underpinned by cheating, by sign stealing, specifically that they had players watching a video feed behind the dugout and cracking the opposing catcher's signs, which are the finger sequences he uses to tell the pitcher what pitch to throw on any given delivery, and transmitting that information to hitters at the plate by the very new school, high-tech method of banging on a trash can. So this obviously undercut in a significant way all that I had written about the Astros. It undercut the Astros' story of success, and it made me immediately feel a deep responsibility to go back into this story and to get to the bottom of it, to understand how this cheating scheme, this sign-stealing scheme, played into this broader story of innovation and embracing of technology and success that I had told. So I very quickly dove back into a story I thought I was done with and spent most of 2020 making my podcast The Edge to really approach the story from many, many different angles, as you've heard if you've listened to it. What was your initial response when you first heard about this last fall? There were two parts to it. First, I was blindsided by this news. As somebody who'd spent so much of my career stretching back even before I wrote my book, you know, I'd been with the story since 2014 when I first was with Sports Illustrated and went down to Houston and embedded with the front office for a while to just look into why this team was so terrible at the time and if they had any plans to get better. So I'd spent so much time on this story that I was hit by a ton of bricks that this happened, right? I was probably more surprised than many people. But I was also not entirely shocked, if that makes sense, if you could add those two together. Because when I started reading about what they had reportedly done, and I started thinking about the Astros program and the people who ran the organization, this was an organization that was entirely devoted to finding an edge in everything that it did, in embracing whatever competitive advantages they could find, whether it was in drafting players, whether it was in trading for players, whether it was in training players players, 
whether it was an on-field strategies, every single thing they pushed to the extreme. Sign stealing is something that's been going on in baseball forever. It's not actually illegal to steal signs. It's illegal to use technology to steal signs. But the first recorded instance of sign stealing was in 1876. So I started to think, is this part of the Astros program? Do they take this age-old baseball tradition and, as they did with so many other things, weaponize it? But in this case, did they go too far? So that was kind of the framework through which I started thinking about this story right away and investigating it. The framing of your podcast, which I just loved, started with this one pitcher, sort of borderline major league pitcher, whose career may have been derailed by that cheating. Right. Mike Bolsinger. How did you go about coming to frame it that way? Believe it or not, Mike Bolsinger was like the first guy I wanted to talk to about this story. Because actually, it came out that he had been severely impacted by this probably in late January. So the moment I read about who he was and what happened to his career, I knew that I have to talk to this guy for one big reason. In a lot of ways, people were looking at this as almost a victimless crime, right? It's like everybody does it. Yeah, maybe the Dodgers were negatively impacted by it. But, you know, it's just part of the game. But Mike Bolsinger was this borderline call him a quadruple A pitcher in baseball terms, meaning that he's probably too good for triple A, probably not. He's going to have a tough time hanging in the major leagues. He was hanging on by his fingernails. And in August of 2017, he runs into the Astros and they absolutely obliterate him. They blow him up, right? He comes in in the middle of a game. The Astros are already ahead. He's a pitcher for the Blue Jays. And he gives up like four runs, gets one out, hit after hit, walk after walk goes back to the dugout, goes into the clubhouse, is sent down to the minor leagues, never pitches in the major leagues again after this, right? He has to go to Japan for a couple of years. Now he's kind of out there as a free agent. Turned out after people studied the exact pattern of the Astros sign stealing, he had faced them on the night of its peak. Like they had banged on their trash can more times on that night than against anybody else. So obviously this puts a human face on this story. And this is not a guy, I mean, maybe they would have beaten him up anyway, right? Maybe his career was going to come to an end no matter what, but he didn't get the chance to find out fairly. So he was a guy I knew I really wanted to start with to put a human face on this crime and to kind of show the emotional stakes that go along with sometimes almost the slapstick elements of it when you're talking about trash cans and things like that. And as you walk through these interviews, what did you find as you went through the ranks of who was involved and the managers and the general manager and the ownership. A big part of my mission, Ted, was to find out or determine who's to blame for this. The commissioner's report, Commissioner Rob Manfred, issued a nine-page report in January of 2020 in which he largely pinned the blame on the general manager of the team, kind of the visionary architect of this whole program, whose name is Jeff Luno, and also the manager, A.J. Hinch. This was the clear takeaway from the commissioner's report. These were the two guys who were suspended for a year. The players, even though it was characterized as a player-driven scheme, they were given immunity in exchange for testifying, so they were not punished at all. The commissioner, in the very first paragraph, actually, which stuck out like a red thumb to me, the very first paragraph of this nine-page report, 
completely absolved the owner of the team, Jim Crane, from any responsibility or accountability whatsoever. So I really wanted to take my time and go into this and figure out who is to blame. And is it really just Jeff Luna or AJ Hinch? Does it go broader than this within the organization? Does it go broader than this within Major League Baseball? That was a big motivation of mine to figure out exactly why this happened and who deserves accountability for it. And as you dove into this, who was willing to talk to you and who wasn't? This story, it's still very fraught right now, even as we're talking. And I, you know, I worked on this podcast for eight or nine months. There's a lot of people who are very motivated not to talk about it, to move on with their careers. I imagine that a lot of them are being gagged, for lack of a better word, by the powers that be. You know, it's obviously Major League Baseball wants them not to talk about this. But I didn't want to allow that. I think it's important to shine sunlight on what's happening in this scandal and on the power structures that exist in a major industry like Major League Baseball. So it's hard to get the players to talk, the Astros players. I did get opposing players to talk about, several of them. I did get, after a lot of trying, Jeff Luno, the general manager of the team, to talk. He had not talked to anybody for nine months after the story broke. I talked to him for five and a half hours, and what he says is very revealing. Yeah, so what did Jeff say? Jeff is a very intelligent guy, obviously. He came to baseball from... McKinsey. He was a founder in Silicon Valley. He'd been in baseball for 16 years at this point, but he's still viewed as an outsider in the industry, right? This like very insular industry. And he's very convincing, Ted, as you've heard, because you listened to the series, he's very convincing about why he did not know this was happening. His players were hiding this from him. There were actually two sign-stealing schemes going on at once. One was happening in the video room. One was happening among the players. Very convincing point by point why he did not know about any of these schemes. But one question I ask him and one question that I weigh very heavily in this series is, should he have known? Like, okay, you don't specifically know what they're doing. Isn't it your responsibility to know, to try to know, to ensure the compliance of your organization as far as following the rules those are two very different questions. And Major League Baseball, as I said, did an extensive investigation into this. Even they couldn't prove that Jeff Luno knew. You know, they looked at tens of thousands of emails and texts. They interviewed like dozens and dozens of witnesses, many of whom probably didn't like Jeff Luno very much. They could not prove that he definitively knew. They think he did, but they're not sure. But that's a different question. To me, almost the more important question is, should he have known as the general manager of the organization? There is this whole question of getting an edge and incentive schemes and what is crossing the line and what isn't. And in baseball, you mentioned, I guess, sign stealing was okay, but using technology to steal signs wasn't. How did this happen on this team where they crossed the line? There are many factors. It's almost a perfect storm of factors that led to this in the absence of any one, I think it probably wouldn't have happened or would not have blown up in the way it did. One is that sign stealing is this age-old tradition in baseball. And in episode three, I kind of take you through the pretty hilarious, actually, history of things that people have tried to do. You know, Bob Feller, the great Indians pitcher, went to World War II. He interrupted his career for three years to go on a ship in the Pacific, and he brought back this high-powered telescope. And he had it installed in center field in Cleveland Stadium. 
and they would still catch her signs using this World War II telescope. There's dozens and dozens of examples of this from across the game's history. There's the torrent of new video technologies that has flooded into Major League Baseball clubhouses over the last decades that were really pretty lightly regulated. You're talking about high-definition video. You're talking about replay review systems. This was all just like catnip to players, especially to savvy players, and the league didn't really put many rules on their use. So there was that. There was the specific makeup of the Astros clubhouse in which one veteran in particular, one coach in particular, Carlos Beltran and Alex Cora, had a lot of influence in there. And in most ways, that influence was exerted in really positive ways as far as mentoring, helping the younger guys get through the season, all of that. But in this way, as far as leading them into this sign-stealing thing, it was a negative. So there was that. There was the fact that a lot of people didn't like the Astros, right? A lot of people wanted to see them taken down for reasons that in many ways were deserved. One of them is that they were a change agent. They were a disruptor and their strategies worked. And that really pissed people off. And the fifth was, frankly, the culture. I don't think you can overlook that. This, we're iconoclasts. We're exceptional. We do things differently. We're the Astros. And I think that played into this activity as well. And again, the question is, where does that come from? Who's to blame for that culture? And I have an answer that's different or at least more complicated than the one that's popularly believed. And what's that answer? My answer is that it largely comes from the top. I talk a lot to Jeff Luno in this podcast, and I understand how some listeners would say that it's sympathetic to Luno, and I'm certainly interested in what he has to say, and I believe what he has to say, but I'm not absolving him for his role in this by any means. But two things can be true. Jeff Luno can be responsible, and he certainly takes responsibility on some level, and he's served a year suspension, and he's probably blackballed from the game going forward. He's currently suing the Astros for $22 million because they tore up his contract, firing him for cause in relation to this. But I think there's other people as well, and I think that as I get into in the very end of the series, an organization's culture, as we know, is largely or significantly set from its top. And I think that the fact that the commissioner, who in most ways is actually employed by the owners of Major League Baseball, the fact that the commissioner so obviously sought to absolve the owner of the team right off the bat for any responsibility on any level, that said something to me. It's almost like the commissioner protests too much on that. So I dive into that in the podcast as well. Why do you think the commissioner did that? Right. So what are the incentives as the commissioner that would lead him to absolve the head of the organization when something like this happens? There are a few. I think he wants to limit the damage. And Luno says this pretty extensively. You want to say, these are the perpetrators. And this has happened throughout baseball history, right? Whenever there's a systemic problem. And one of the things I explore is that sign stealing was not at all limited to the Astros, right? Nobody believes they're the only team doing it. They might have been pushing it farther than anybody else, but they weren't alone. But if you can hold some public executions, you can suggest, hey, we're taking this seriously. And also we've dealt with the problem. So I think that was part of it. And also, quite frankly, a lot of people think of the commissioner as this almost like judge-like figure presiding over the game, looking out for the good of the sport above all else, like a steward. That's not what he is. I mean, Rob Manfred has even described himself as almost a CEO. And the board members slash shareholders, if you will, are the owners. The owners are the ones who hire him. The owners are the ones who can fire him. The owners are the ones whose pockets he's trying to fill increasingly more every year. 
So it's not an impartial judge. It's somebody who works for the guy, or at least, you know, this is one of 30 guys he works for. And it would be very, very unusual for a commissioner to uh, come down hard on an owner, except in a really, really, really extreme circumstance. And this one obviously didn't qualify. So then when you take a step down from Manfred down to ownership, you did walk through the interesting history of the owner of the Astros. Yes. As we know, Houston has always been a hub of innovation, at least start, you know, starting with wildcatters through the space race. It's a technology hub now. And that was the spirit in which the organization was founded by Judge Roy Hofheinz in the 1960s, this kind of larger-than-life character down there. He was a federal judge. He was the mayor. He was a businessman. He was the one who conceived of the Astrodome, which was the first domed stadium in the history of the world. This was his vision. So I love that part of the show because I wanted to establish Houston as this place where change happens. Change happens in sports. Change happens in all sorts of industries. The one thing the judge could never do, though, was win, right? Like he had this great stadium. People loved it. It was exciting. Never won a World Series. That was left to a new innovator who came to town at the end of 2011 Jim Crane is the current owner of the Astros. He made his fortune in shipping and logistics, freight and logistics. In the 80s, he started his company with a uh, $10,000 loan from his sister. And now he's a billionaire. He's got, got a conglomerate. He's a mogul. He's a titan. And in 2011, after a pretty long approval process for some complicated reasons, he became the owner of the Astros. He bought them for about $600 million. Less than 10 years later, they're worth estimates between $2 billion, $2.5 billion. So this is in many ways his greatest investment yet, right? Like quadrupling your investment in under a decade is probably pretty good by any measure. Plus, he's been bringing in revenue every single year. I asked someone in the podcast, this is the biggest scandal in some measures in like baseball history, or at least in recent decades in baseball. Maybe you go back to the steroids era. Did this materially affect Jim Crane, the owner of the team, or the team in any way? And he says no. He was fined $5 million, $5 million, right? That's the maximum fine that an owner can receive in baseball. He lost a few draft picks, but keeps his ring, keeps his players, keeps the franchise valuation. And the franchise valuation is really one of the least understood parts of like a sports owner's play here. Because we look at yearly revenues, which are cloudy to begin with because owners don't open their books. We know what all the players make. We don't know what the owners make. But sports teams like never go down in valuation and people never want to sell them. So the entirety of that valuation goes to the owner. That's not shared with anybody else who helped create the wealth. Like Players don't get stock or equity in the franchises they play for. So that's really the long-term play here. In some ways, year-to-year -year revenue or whatever is almost inconsequential. It's almost secondary to owners who are looking at what they're going to get when they sell the asset. So you mentioned that Klain's approval process wasn't so smooth. Why was that the case? There were several reasons. One is that he had tried several times before to buy major league teams, and they need other owners' approval to buy it. Other owners hadn't been pleased with how he'd gone about it. He'd kind of gone behind people's backs and things like that. There were other issues, too. He had the EEOC had issued a 100-page report 
some years earlier, documenting discrimination within his companies, hiring practices that were discriminating against minorities, they were discriminating against women. There was a manager at his company who had been sent to jail for war profiteering. There were some questionable things in his history. And look, I get it. When you're running a company of thousands and thousands of employees on something like that, you probably can't conceivably know what they're all doing at all times. But you also couldn't help but think about that pattern when the Astros sign-stealing thing happened, right? It's like, yes, once again, I'm the guy who benefits the most from this company. I'm the guy who owns it. But I'm also the guy who, whenever something goes wrong, can say, oh, I didn't know about that. I don't have any responsibility or accountability for that. does seem to be a pattern. So over the last bunch of years, you've had unfettered access to the Astros in a way that very few journalists do. And you wrote the story. I'm wondering, as this played out and you dove back in, how did you think about what you might have missed? Well, I wouldn't say it was unfettered over the last several years. First of all, I just want to be clear about what my access was. In 2014, I did have really good, kind of almost unprecedented access, in my understanding, at least since you know Billy Bean invited Michael Lewis into the A's for Moneyball. This is just not something that teams do. Let a journalist sit in on meetings, talk to whatever executives they want. So back then it was, as they got better and maybe needed like press less, it became tougher and tougher to get inside. At that point, I already had a lot of relationships and sources and things. So it was less of an issue as far as the access. Actually, probably the better way to have access, right? Which is not to have to have the door opened for you. So that was really the nature of my access when the sign stealing scheme came to light, Ted, like I got a lot of messages saying, how could you not know about the trash can banging? You were there. Some people said you knew about this and you were hiding it. You know, things like that. People can say whatever they want. I understand why people are upset about it. I did not have that kind of access, right? Like I was not in the dugout. I was not in the clubhouse. I was not in a position to hear the banging. They did this to over 100 pitchers that year. Some of these guys are like guys with 20 years of experience. Most of them didn't hear it down on the field, et cetera. I did go back through my notes and my recordings, spent a lot of time like trying to see if there's any thread I might have pulled that would have like unraveled this sign-stealing scheme, and there really wasn't. But what I did think about was, had I missed something about the culture of the team, or had I perhaps like underplayed a certain ruthlessness to their program, to this drive for efficiency and success, maybe above all other considerations, in some ways to like the financialization of baseball back in 2014. And I concluded that I probably had. Most of my reporting happened before 2017, which is the year in which the cheating happened. That was a big part of my task. And my goal in this podcast was to go back and look at, you know what? I think I didn't see, I didn't know to look for, I didn't quite understand all of the implications that this extreme modernizing of this organization might have. And I think when I look back at it now, the sign stealing scheme is a symptom of that. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 
36,025 and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. It's obviously not hard to draw a parallel in our world of investing and investment managers and rooting for them as a fan would, or maybe in your case, a journalist to do well. I'm curious in that period of time, as you look back, are there questions that you think you could have asked that you might've had an instinct to ask, but didn't that might have pulled the thread to what ultimately ended up in crossing the line? I would think it's less about asking questions and more about framing the framework through which I'm looking at this story. There were some people at the time, including Evan Drellick, who was a Houston Chronicle reporter back in 2014, 2015, or beat writer for the Astros, ended up being one of the two reporters, along with Ken Rosenthal, who broke the sign-stealing story in 2019. He was probably the biggest critic of what the Astros were doing, turning people into numbers, viewing players not as humans, but as assets. Maybe he was onto something in some measure. Part of me says, look, baseball's always been a very brutal business, right? Baseball's always been a business in which a player could lose his job in an instant, just like Mike Bolsinger did. So wouldn't you rather, if you were a player, know that there were like very strong analytical reasons? Here's the evidence why you were being sent down to the minors as opposed to the coach didn't like you or something like that, the way it used to happen. There's something to be said for that, right? And, and in some respect, we're all numbers. Like we all receive compensation or we're all valued, like this valuation approach to everything in baseball. Interrogating those trends a little, with a little bit of a more critical eye at the time is something that I wish I'd done. So let's say you look at it from today. What changes in the game and how do you think differently about it? I think very little has changed. I think people aren't going to be stealing signs in the same way. That's for sure. First of all, nobody's going to want to do what the Astros did. Second of all, the league has belatedly instituted some very significant rules, like real regulations about how you can use technology, how you can't use technology. But in a larger way, this is the way the game has gone, right? The Astros were once at the vanguard as far as a valuation slash efficiency-based approach to team building and running the organization. They're not really an outlier anymore. This is how everybody operates. We're stuck in this time between when we think of baseball as, oh, it's America's pastime. It's like, oh, owners own teams because they love ball and they love fresh cut grass and all of that. That's just not how it is anymore. Baseball is a $10.7 billion industry now, 
as far as we know. And now ownership is diversifying in all sorts of ways into cable networks. And a lot of teams have property real estate plays surrounding the stadium. If you've been to Wrigley Field anytime recently, you've certainly seen that in Chicago. So this is a really big business run with modern, cutting-edge, big business strategies across the sport. And maybe fans don't care, Ted, right? Like at the end of the day, maybe they just care that they have a winning team on the field. They don't care what the owner is doing. They don't care about how equitable the pay structure is or anything like that. But I think it's important that they know about it to you know make that decision for themselves. You're describing it as a pastime that's become a business driven by money. And if you walk through what that means, that money gets driven, clearly what happened with the Astros, to the winning teams. And so the question is, what do you do to win? <laughs> well, that's another problem with baseball is that the money doesn't always get driven only to the winning teams. Winning is, in baseball in particular, kind of less incentivized than you would think. So there's plenty of teams out there who don't seem to be trying to win very hard. They'll do anyway because of the revenue sharing structure, because of just the fact that team valuations continue to go up and up and up no matter what they do. I mean, look at the Miami Marlins sold for a couple years ago to the group that included Derek Jeter. I forget exactly what it was. It was definitely in the mid one billions, right, for probably the worst franchise in all ways. There is. So actually, I think it's a problem that winning is not as broadly incentivized as you'd think. So what does that imply for the way the game has changed? And in particular, I think the most apparent from a fan's perspective is the combination of kind of infield shifts and home runs and strikeouts, which makes the game much less interesting to look at. But then when you compare it to other sports, there are these evolved rules. Like in basketball, you have the key and they move back the three-point line. And so at what point in time does Major League Baseball think about changing the rules to make the game better to watch? I was talking to someone who's very smart on this stuff the other day, and he pointed out that baseball is not the only sport that's currently being driven to be the most efficient, perfect version of itself. It so happens that in some of the other sports, like that actually results in a better entertainment product, arguably, right? In the NBA, it means it's more run and gun. It's more threes. It's like a more open game. Same thing in the NFL, really, aided by some rule changes, but it's kind of opened up offenses. It's like high scoring. It's more exciting. The most perfect, efficient base version of baseball means nothing happens, essentially. As you say, it's a lot of strikeouts. Hitters sell out to hit home runs fielders shift so that when hitters don't hit home runs, they'll be in perfect position to catch the ball. Very little athleticism in a given game. So I don't know if it's just like the specific nature of baseball's rule set that results in this, but it's certainly a problem that the commissioner is going to have to address probably via rule changes very soon. But we've seen this so many times, especially in baseball. It's, there's always this like butterfly effect. Like they change a rule and then all these other things happen that are probably not as good and not as anticipated. So baseball is very traditional, but it's traditional as far as changing its rules for a reason, because it knows if it changes one thing, all sorts of other negative results could happen. So, yeah, I do think, especially because it's at the end of the day, it's an entertainment product. 
I do think we'll see the commissioner try to make some significant rule changes. Maybe it's to the strike zone. Maybe it's moving the mound back to get more offense in particular, more action on the field sometime soon. As you looked at the Astros and thought about creating the story of this podcast, there are plenty of examples of highly effective organizations that then crossed the line. And you could think back in the financial world, some say Michael Milken did that, some say Bernie Madoff did that. What did you find in the culture that led the Astros to doing that? It's many things. To, to sum it up, I'll say that the ethical backbone of the organization was not always apparent. Jeff Luno, the general manager, as we know, took the fall. And I've talked to people and they said, I've never ever thought of Jeff as a cheater. He would never encourage the breaking of rules. He was kind of a by the book guy. He'd certainly push the rules as far as they can go and find all sorts of loopholes. But he'd never break the rules. But that's different from insisting and instilling a culture of rule following. It's actually quite different when you think about it. His guys would send him emails and there would be little mentions on like page five of things like the system and the dark arts. And Luna's defense, and granted, these are like two emails the league found that Luna actually turned over to the league out of like 60,000 that something like this was mentioned in, right? And Luna's defense is... Everybody knows that I don't read past the first paragraph of emails, and I didn't see these things. And if I had, I wouldn't actually know that they were related to rule-breaking anyway. And that could be true. I've talked to people who said, I do not personally believe that Jeff Luno knew that this was happening, right? Like people within the organization. It's very hard to find somebody who says otherwise. But <laughs> that doesn't mean that everybody knew, like, we better follow the rules in this organization or we're going to get in trouble. It just wasn't a priority. And I think that was coming down from the top. I think that was coming from Jeff Luno. I think that was coming from Jim Crane. It was not a priority of the organization. So I think that contributed to it. I also think there's just a general lack of oversight in the organization. Like part of the reason the organization was so successful is it hired very, very smart people and put them in these pretty low level, pretty low paid jobs and we're like, you know, you better produce here or you're out or you're not going to move up. It's just a lot of pressure. And I've come to learn this is how it works in a lot of hedge funds. Certain hedge funds, your year-over-year performance is all that matters. If you don't hit your number, you're gone. So these guys were incentivized to probably push the line a lot further and further and further every year. And one thing I found was very interesting is that there's this structure in baseball called playoff shares, which I'd heard a little bit about. It's essentially like... Teams are compensated for going further in the playoffs, okay? And, like, you get a share of the gate receipts. So in 2017, if you're the Astros and you win the World Series, it was, like, $450,000 bonus per player, which is actually a lot of money, even for a baseball player. Minimum salary guys would double their salary based on this playoff share. But the players were also responsible for voting on who else got a cut of these playoff shares, which non-players. And those could include people like the guys who worked in the video room who were helping the players out all year. And these are guys who make $50,000 a year, maybe $90,000 a year if you're a manager. So if the players decide to vote you one of these playoff shares, your salary is going from 90000 to like 550000 
right? Of the player's decision. So where are your incentives going to lie? Like you're going to try to keep these players happy and give them any information they want and prove your worth to them, hoping you're going to get this enormous bonus at their whim. And when I think about it, when I think about like, why did people in the organization do this? Why did these video room guys do this? That's frankly the best explanation I came across. Follow the money. So you mentioned the hedge fund business and there have been some parallels for sure. The most recent crossover with baseball, of course, is the purchase of the Mets. And you framed your last episode in and around Stevie Cohen. What are your thoughts on that? For some reason, I was thinking about Steve Cohen's story in relation to this story from the very beginning, right? Like back in February, back in March, even before it. I think partially because they use the same terminology, like this idea of edge. That's what the Astros would always say. We're looking for edge. We're looking for bleeding edge, probably in part because a lot of them came from the financial world or at least the business world. And that's what Steve Cohen was looking for, too. But then when you start diving into the way the organizations were structured, the way accountability was distributed, who faced consequences for wrongdoing and who did not face consequences for wrongdoing, even down to the defense of I didn't read the emails, which if you follow the Steve Cohen story, you know that that was a big part of his defense at various points, the crossovers were just significant and the resonances were significant. And I thought that it showed how some of the problems that have affected the finance industry have now crept into baseball from the beginning. Lo and behold, the week that this episode comes out, like eight months later, is the week that Steve Cohen does a welcomed, celebrated press conference as the new owner of the Mets and somebody who's going to, people are going to think he's going to open up his pocketbooks like he does for a Giacometti sculpture or something like that. But I did think it was interesting. Baseball having just gotten through this huge ethical scandal, we've cleaned up the game, we've kicked Jeff Luno out for a year, we've kicked the manager out, we really care about ethics. And then they turn around and they rush through the approval process, a guy who's had this sort of history on Wall Street, and who, by the way, is now like the richest owner in baseball by a factor of three. And it got me thinking about which of those things actually matters more, among other things. So in the last decade or so, we've had this wave in baseball. We had the whole steroid scandal. Now we have this. Maybe the culture of Major League Baseball hasn't changed. And so as you look out, what do you think will be the next surprise? The next edge. I think there's going to be a lot coming as far as health. Health is a big thing that teams have still not really cracked as far as especially how to keep pitchers healthy. If we want to look at it from an asset perspective, which I don't really like doing anymore, and I think journalists should get away from that, how do you maintain this asset's value over the course of your investment? So things like that. But frankly, if I look ahead, I think on a labor front, baseball is in for a really rough time coming ahead because I think that players are just seeing things as less and less equitable. You see a season in which... The ownership, the commissioner really put the screws on the players during the COVID season as far as, you know, like salaries and how much we're going to play. There were like months of back and forth. We're losing all this money. And then like two months later, the Mets are sold for two and a half billion dollars. If you're a player, you're like, wait, wait a minute. Like this is actually what this industry is valued at. And yet suppressing salaries, you're firing employees all over the place. You're crying poor. 
I think that that might just be fuel on the fire of a labor battle that's probably been coming for a while. You know, Ben, the last time we closed out the podcast, I had asked you, okay, you finished this great bestseller, what's going to be next? And talked about stories. We certainly didn't expect we'd be talking about this again. So where are you focusing next? I just finished this thing last week. If you can believe it, I was recording the final episode the day before it dropped iTunes, Apple Podcasts, wherever wherever you get your podcasts. But I do think, as you found, Ted, I think there's something about this medium that's really rich and really allows for kind of an emotional storytelling. So I'd certainly like to look for season two of The Edge. I don't think it's going to be at the Astros. I think this time I might be done writing about the Astros. But exploring these lines between cheating and gamesmanship, between ethical behavior and unethical behavior maybe in sports, maybe out of it. Those are certainly questions that I think about. And really, at the end of the day, it's about investigating how power works in these industries. Like, that's really what this story is about. Who has the power? How does the power operate? Who doesn't have the power? At the end of the day, that's how I saw this story. And just to close out on the end of this story, you now have a bunch of people that have been treated quite differently. As you said, like, claim the owner, everything's fine. Luno's out of baseball. A.J. Hinch just got rehired. Beltron, Cora. How have you thought through consequences? I will say A.J. Hinch is back as the manager of the Tigers. Alex Cora, who in some ways was like the ringleader along with Beltron of this whole thing, he was rehired as the manager of the Red Sox. And I've been wondering why. A lot of people have asked me, are you surprised by this? No, I'm not surprised. First of all, they did pay real penalties for this. Being suspended for a full season is a significant penalty, no matter what. And second of all, they were kind of insiders. They were ballplayers themselves. They were more part of the firmament of Major League Baseball. They were very well liked. They were proven winners. So yeah, it, it, it makes sense that they're back. Jeff Luno, I think, will have a tougher road. Well, especially now that he's suing the Astros for $22 million. That probably doesn't help his chances. But he was always somebody who never quite shed his outsider status. In a lot of ways, he embraced that. He liked being that iconoclastic figure, ruffling feathers, changing things. So I think that he'll have a harder time getting back. But again, he's somebody who is so talented and so visionary and has so much experience in all sorts of fields. I wouldn't think he'd have trouble getting a job of some sort sometime soon. All right, Ben, as you look back on this whole experience... What have you learned that you wish you knew at the beginning? A lot. I wish, I don't want to say, Ted, that always look twice at things that seem to be too good to be true. But I admit that I, along with everybody else, might have been a little caught up in this rise, this like exciting rise of the Astros. And, you know, we predicted on the cover of Sports Illustrated in 2014, this terrible team is going to win the World Series in 2017. And then they actually did. And it was fun, and what they did was new, and it was, like, intoxicating in some ways. And it wasn't all BS, right? Like, they did make a lot of really positive innovations in Major League Baseball. And they are a model organization in that, and they helped people, too. Like, they helped a lot of players get the best out of themselves who might not have anywhere else. They brought a World Series to a city that had been thirsting for one for 56 years. So there are a lot of positives to this story. But just always be more critical and always look under the hood, especially when something kind of seems like a fairy tale 
because it usually isn't. Ben, while I have you, I have a few new closing questions since you were last on the show. So let me rip those off. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I'm probably reading just all day long when I'm not like writing or reporting, like probably too much of it reading on Twitter, but you know, just reading for sure is one of them. Other than that, I'll do anything to be in or on open water in any capacity. So reading and water, I guess. And along those lines, what is your favorite book? You've probably heard this one before on this show, but it's The Power Broker by Robert Caro. It's almost painful to read as a journalist because sometimes you'll read a single page of it and you could tell that Caro put like months of reporting into that one page and they're 1,200 pages. But as a New Yorker, you need to read this because you'll never take a walk or drive around the city again without thinking about it. But also, you know, his main concern is power. And what he always says is power doesn't always corrupt, but it always reveals And that kind of underpins every story. And it's something that I kept in mind every single day as I was reporting and making The Edge. Great. Well, one more before we turn to a couple further premium members. What's your most important daily habit? This question always makes me think that I should have a habit. (laughs) Like I could probably use one beyond, you know, the basics of hygiene and all that. Uh, I've basically been working on this podcast for like 15 hours a day since the summer. So I guess my habit was working on the podcast and uh, I'm going to need a new one now that this one's done. Great. Ben, thanks so much again. Thanks, Ted. Anytime. All right. I'm going to ask you just a couple more. What's your favorite non-baseball sporting event? I went to Hull City in England in 2010 to write a story about Josie Altador, the American soccer player. And Hull's this place where being an American is unusual, which is not like you can't usually say it about most places you go. But uh, ever since I went to that Hull game, I've been hooked on English soccer ever since. I've actually gotten a lot of reach out from England, from English soccer people and people who work for teams about the Astros because that industry is a few years behind. The best game I ever attended, though, personally, was the Yale Baylor first round 2016 NCAA tournament game. Dreaming of Yale playing in the NCAA tournament for years and to have been able to go in Providence and see them actually win a game, it proved to a jaded sports writer like me that you can still feel genuine joy from watching a sporting event. Great. All right. One more. What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? Well, we spent the last hour talking about a pretty big big one, like painfully dissecting what I had missed in this thing. But for me, I I think if I have to answer this in general for me, it's like a category error, which is being overly risk averse, not trying things because of comfort or fear of failure or, or something like that. You know, someone I know is very smart said that nobody ever regrets, say, leaving a job to try something new. I'm sure some people do regret this. Obviously, it doesn't always work out. But most people, it's a hard step to take. But once you take that leap, you tend to be glad that you did. That's certainly true in my case. And I've just turned 40. So that's certainly going to be a guideline going forward and one I want to instill in my kids as well. Great. Ben, thanks so much again. Ted, always a pleasure. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 